Good evening. We're in the book of, of Galatians, chapter 5, and I'll begin with verse 1. We're going to read through 15. Galatians 1, 5, 1 through 15. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you would have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Please pray with me. Father, we're so grateful for your word. And we're so grateful for your word that leads us into the presence of Christ that we might be saved. We do pray, Father, that your spirit would be here to apply your word to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, tonight what I want to look at is the law and the gospel, specifically in, in reference to the freedom in Christ. Um, I want to read something, though, from, from Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote a commentary. It, he really didn't write a commentary. What he was doing in 1531, he was teaching lectures at, at the University of Wittenberg. And the lectures were captured, and then in, in 1535, they were published. And I want to read uh, a, a couple sections from the introduction. He says this, Man's weakness and misery is so great that in the terrors of conscience and danger of death, we behold nothing else but our works, our worthiness, and the law, which when it shows us our sin, by and by our evil life comes to remembrance. Then the poor sinner with great anguish of spirit groans and says to himself, Alas, how desperately I have lived. Would to God I might live longer. Then would I amend my life. Thus, man's reason cannot restrain itself from beholding his own righteousness. It is true 
that all of the, it is true that of all the things in the world, the law is most excellent. Yet the law is not able to quiet a troubled conscience, but increases the terrors and drives it to desperation. For by the commandment, sin is made exceedingly sinful. Therefore, the afflicted and troubled conscience has no remedy against the desperation and eternal death unless it takes hold of the promise of grace freely offered in Christ. Thus, I abandon myself from all active righteousness, both of my own and of God's law, and embrace only the righteousness of grace, mercy, and forgiveness of sins, that is, the righteousness of Christ. He that teaches that men are justified before God by the observation of law passes the bounds of the law and confounds these two kinds of righteousness is but an ill logician. For he does not rightly divide. Contrarywise, he that sets forth the law and works to the old man and the promise of forgiveness of sins and God's mercy to the new man divides the word well. Christian righteousness appertains to the new man and the righteousness of the law appertains to the old man, which is born of flesh and blood. He then that strays from this Christian righteousness must needs fall into the righteousness of the law. That is to say, when he strays from Christ, he must fall into the confidence of his own works. So now I want to look at the first section. And the first section that I want to look at, I, I kind of entitled, and I, 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 when, I read, when I read through Scripture, one of the things I try to do is try to summarize thoughts. Because I, we, we, we don't think abstractly. We, we don't think, uh, we think logically. And he talked about a logis, logician, right? And when you, when you look at, at, at Paul's logic throughout the book of Galatians, throughout the, uh, the book of Romans, it's like that. He's, he's building on one thing upon another. And Paul is really building not just uh, in, in these little pieces and snippets. Paul's building from the whole counsel of God. And so, so it becomes really, really important as you're under, trying to understand what he's saying in these verses that you're pulling in, you're pulling in the whole counsel of God, not just snippets within here. And so... One of the things I wanted to read first, let me read this section. Freedom is freely given in Christ, not in the law. Hey, listen to what he says. This is from uh, verses 1 through 6. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to the law to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Now he points to there are two kinds of righteousness. There's a, first the righteousness by keeping the law. And then there's a righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. So we see the first kind of righteousness in the phrase justified by the law. This is a judicial declaration. That occurs after the evidence has been presented, the judge examines it, and then he declares that you have kept the law. There is no violation. 
you are in perfect conformity with the law. In other words, you have a right standing before the law. That's what it means to be justified by the law. Paul had already proved to the Galatians that no one possesses this kind of righteousness. But by no one, I mean no one except Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul means when he says this. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. That's Galatians 3, 11 through 12. Notice that he says that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, who is the judge. There is none righteous, no, not one. Paul tells us in Romans 3. In fact, he goes on to say that all were held captive and in bondage under its curse. In verse 13 of chapter 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So we were all under the curse of the law. But Christ suffered the curse of the law by dying on the cross for us. He fulfilled the demands of the law on our behalf and set us free from the curse of death. This is the second kind of righteousness. Righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Now this kind of righteousness is not an inherent righteousness. By that what I mean is it's not mine. It's not within me. It's a righteousness which is without. It's an imputed righteousness. And it becomes ours, we become united to it because it's Christ's righteousness through faith. So you'll read through the Bible, you'll read through Paul's writings, and you'll see this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. What's he saying? He's saying that you are united to Christ. And what's his is yours. And what's yours has been paid for at the cross. So... That's just what Paul says. The just shall live by faith. So now these two kinds of righteousness, Paul points out, they are mutually exclusive. Paul exhorts the Galatians to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. He tells them to stand fast because there were some false teachers who were leading them astray, compelling them to be circumcised. That's in 6.12. You'll also see in Acts 12, in, in, Acts, in Acts 5, it gives you a little more insight of what, what they were teaching in Acts, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Now, it doesn't specifically say they're in Galatia, but they were in the area. And you can see that this was pretty much, when you read through the book of Galatians, this is what they were teaching. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, circumcision was originally given to Abraham before the Mosaic Covenant, before the law was given. It was given to Abraham. 
But when the, God gave the law to Moses some 430 years later, then circumcision became part of the law. You'll find it in Leviticus 12. He commanded the Jews to circumcise every child on the eighth day. So circumcision was part of the Mosaic law. It was not optional. Therefore, to be justified by keeping the law, you must be circumcised. Otherwise, you would be a lawbreaker. I think this is the point that Paul's making when he writes, everyone who becomes circumcised is a debtor to keep the whole law. Because you know why? If you offend in one point, what happens? You're guilty. James puts it like this. For whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. That's James 2.10. Paul goes on to say that those who seek to be justified by keeping the law, Christ will profit you nothing. Why is that? Because you have become estranged from Christ is his answer. You have fallen from grace. See, those who seek to be justified by the law are debtors to the whole law. They themselves pay the debt. Those who seek to be justified by grace are not debtors to the law. Christ paid the debt in full for them when he died on the cross. Grace is freely given, not to the righteous, but to the unrighteous. That's why it's called grace. It's a gift of love that flows from the heart of God. It cannot be earned. It cannot be purchased. It is freely received by those who do not deserve it. That is why justification by keeping the law and justification by faith in Christ are incompatible, even contrary. The first is owed. The second is a free gift. Paul puts us this way in 11, Romans eleven six, And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it, if, it, if it is a works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. They don't mix. Grace and works can never mix. Now, you might be sitting here tonight and thinking, well, how does this apply to me? All right? I'm not trying to keep the Mosaic law. It doesn't apply to me. I, it doesn't even matter to me if I'm circumcised or uncircumcised. Heck, some of you can't even be circumcised, right? Well, that's, it's a great question. In fact, it's a question itself. That question itself is why the Mosaic law was given. In the first place, you will notice that Paul says, we through the spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. He's speaking about something in the future. Something that is coming. That's what the words wait for and hope imply. We can't see it with our eyes. That is why it must be through the spirit. Now, the Apostle John spoke and he saw something in the spirit. Let me read what he saw. Then I saw a great white throne on him who sat on it. 
from whose face the earth and the heaven and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them and I saw the dead small and great standing before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, the Mosaic law was given to open the eyes of those who could not and would not see the seriousness of their sinful state. It reveals two kinds of righteousness. Righteousness by keeping the law and righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. You will either be standing in your own righteousness or the righteousness of Jesus Christ when you are summoned to appear before the judge on that great day. In which one do you stand? The answer to this question is applicable to everyone. Let's look at the second part. There are hindrances to this freedom in Christ from the misuse of the law. Start in verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his own judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, in the movie Chariots of Fire, we watch this with the, uh, with the uh, college kids, right? The, the movie The Chariots of Fire. It's one of my favorite movies. So Eric Little and his sister Jenny had a conflict. He was training to run in the Olympics. But she thought it was a distraction that would pull them away from their Christian mission in China. And Eric saw that she was deeply troubled. So he pulled her aside and he said, Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his presence. In one of the races to qualify for the English Olympic team, Eric was running. And another runner cut into his lane and knocked him down. But instead of staying on the ground, he got up, got back in the race, and he not only finished, he won. Paul was confident of a similar outcome for the Christians in Galatia. Not because of their natural ability, but because of God's grace in them. They were running well and obeying the truth, but someone cut in and hindered them in their race. False teachers came in with a false gospel. It was not the gospel that they received from God through Paul. It was another gospel. Paul characterizes this gospel with the statement, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We can look at this as merely an illustration, but it appears to me more than that from the context. So I want to look at it a little bit closer. The study of leaven in the Bible is an interesting study. 
Paul uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians. He says this, this is 1 Corinthians 5, 5 through 7. It, act, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as it is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up. Now picking up in verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Both in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians, Paul uses leaven to teach us something about the work of the flesh. Here, in, in Corinthians, it's immorality, which is lawlessness. In Galatians, it was moralism, which is legalism. In these two passages, we have two different works of the flesh, but they both produce the same effects that can be seen in leaven. The first effect we see in leaven is a little leaven will work its way through the whole lump. So it is with the flesh. A little flesh will work its way through the whole body of Christ. This is why Paul is correcting these churches. The second effect we see in leaven is not expressly stated in that, in that phrase. It's inherent in the nature of what leaven is. Leaven is a fermenting agent. It produces a reaction that fills the lump with hot air, causing it to rise. So it is with the flesh. In 1 Corinthians, Paul rebuked them for being puffed up and told them, your glorying is not good. In Galatians, he warned them that false teachers desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Galatians 6.13. Paul just didn't pull leaven out of the thin air to use it in this passage. He knew that Moses used both leaven and circumcision to teach us something about righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Leaven was a type, a type, that's a literary device, a type prefiguring the cross of Christ. Circumcision was a sign pointing to the cross of Christ. Let's look at that. According to Moses, in Exodus 12, 15, the first Passover was eaten with unleavened bread. Whoever ate leavened bread would be cut off. At the last Passover, which was the first supper, Christ said that this bread is his body which is broken for you. In addition, for circumcision, Moses recorded the promise to God, of God to Abraham in Genesis 15. I'm going to pick up in, in, in the middle of four. One who comes from your own body shall be your heir. And then I'm going to go up to six. And he believed the Lord and he, he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now then if you go after that into Genesis 17, here's what it says. Abraham, 
Abraham was circumcised. But now I want to look at what does that mean, circumcised? It's a bloody sign. It's a cutting off of the flesh from the part of his body that the incarnate promised seed would come. You can see that in the book of Luke and in the book of Matthew. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, you know who it comes to? A guy named Abraham. Paul explains this. He, he, he explains this in Colossians 2. Listen to what he says. It's a very interesting passage. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Let me read that one more time for you. By the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken them out of the way and nailed them to the cross. Christ cut off our flesh at the cross when he was, as Isaiah put off, put, as, as Isaiah wrote in, in Isaiah 53, 6, cut off from the land of the living. Both circumcision and leaven terminate at the cross of Christ in his death. The flesh has been cut off and the lump is unleavened. The demands of the law have been satisfied with the perfect righteousness of Christ. The penalty has been paid and his people have been purified. This is why Paul didn't preach circumcision. God set the sign up for those wandering in the desert, pointing them to the promised destination. Now that the promised destination is realized, Christ cross, the sign is no longer needed. In Jesus, in, Paul says this, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. There's no need for the sign anymore. It's been fulfilled. He goes on to tell us that he still suffered, but not because he preached circumcision. If he preached circumcision, then the offense of the cross would cease. Well, what was the offense of the cross? In a word, grace. As we read, true circumcision is made without hands. It's a sovereign work of God's grace alone. The work of man has no part in it whatsoever. Grace purges every trace of fleshly leaven. And the flesh is offended when its glory is removed. False teachers were corrupting the gospel by teaching the Galatians that they must be circumcised to be saved. They were misusing the law for their own glory and hindering the Christians in Galatia from continuing in the grace of God. So Paul takes the Galatians back to the cross 
to cut off the false teachers and cast out their corrupt teaching. Freedom in Christ is the only way to remove the hindrance and run well. That's it. Now, in our class, my Sunday school class this morning, church history, you know, we were going through liberalism in the 1800s. And, you know, we think, we, th- we think today, you know, um, I, I used to tell the, uh, the youth, if you think you can't be deceived, you already are, right? Because, because when you read through the 1800s, I mean, there are some staunch defenders of the faith who were led astray by the deceits of the evil one. And, it's, and, and, and one of the things I point out as we're going through the church history, we started in the book of Genesis. And coming out of the book of Genesis, there's two seeds. Coming out of the garden, there's two seeds. Seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Two seeds. Now, wherever, when you trace it through the Bible, and when you trace it through history, what you'll find out, he even, he even tells the parable of seeds about this also. When... Wherever the seed of the woman is proclaimed, there, very, very, very close, will be the seed of the serpent. As he says in the parable of the seeds, to snatch it away. So, Paul's warning is not for just them in their time. It's very, very applicable to us today. I, I, I also tell, uh, uh, try to repeat this over and over again. When you're, in a, when you're in an environment that you have grown up in and you become so acclimated to it, it's almost like a fish in a fishbowl where the very air that you're breathing, right, becomes part of it. You don't realize, you don't, under, you don't, you don't see the deception. It's hard, it's difficult. And the enemy never just comes out and says, hey, here I am. I'm a deceiver. That's not how it works. He appears as an angel of light, and he's very subtle. Takes a little here, twists it. Imperceptible. It's usually how it is. And so Paul's warning is for us, not just them. And I'm going to read at the end, I'm going to read at the end uh, an admonition from Luther that will do well for us to, to take heed. But let's go on to the last point. Freedom in Christ for love is for love, not for lawlessness. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. The moment we're justified by grace through faith in Christ, we are forgiven, accepted as righteous in his side, and set free from the curse of the law. This is known as justification. God declares us righteous not based on our inherent righteousness in and of ourselves, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. But God's grace does not cease the moment that we are declared righteous. It continues to flow from Christ through the Holy Spirit to change us and renew us after the image of Christ so that we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. This is known as sanctification. The distinction between justification and sanctification is important. Legalism subverts 
justification. Lawlessness stifles sanctification. This is why Paul warns the Galatians not to use liberty as an opportunity to the flesh. They had been set free from the condemnation of the law, but they were not set free to continue in lawlessness. There have been many people throughout throughout history who think that the gospel is against the law or anti-law. The word for it is antinomianism, comes from the Greek. I won't give you my Greek accent because it sounds Italian. It confuses the misuse of the law with the purpose of the law. The misuse of the law is bad. The misuse of the law is bad, but that does not make the law bad. Paul said, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Consider this, all right? In heaven, everyone will love the Lord and will be worshiping him. Everyone everyone will also love their neighbor, but we we won't be worshiping them. Why not? Because it's wrong. How do we know it's wrong to worship our neighbor? Because the moral instructs us to worship God alone. God has revealed to us what is right and what is wrong. Notice in our passage what Paul uses to instruct the Galatians how to stand firm in this liberty. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from the law. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18. And he's using the law in accordance with its intended purpose. To lead us to the love of Christ. Christ also quotes this law and instructs us from it. You shall love the, the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And all, all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So now this raises a couple questions. Why does Paul quote the second greatest commandment but not the first, like Jesus? Also, Paul says that all the law is fulfilled in the second. How does the second fulfill the first? Well, if you look at the context, he's talking, he's, he's concerned, he's concerned about them examining themselves. He wants them to see if they are standing in the freedom in Christ by faith or are they standing in the flesh. Love is a fruit of being united to Christ by faith. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's next week. Galatians 5.22. This fruit is made most evident in the love of your neighbor. Why is that? The second great commandment is like the first. It is not the same. This is consistent with the relationship between the image of God and God himself. The image is a likeness. It is not a sameness. Man is a visible reflection of the invisible God. If the love of God is in him, it will be visibly evident in how he treats his neighbor. The order is important. That is why there is a first and a second. We do not know what love is unless God first loves us. 
then we can love God. Once we have the love of God, we will love our neighbor. Without the love of God, it is not possible to love your neighbor. John said, we love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? That's 1 John 4, 19 through 20. The evidence that you are standing in the freedom of Christ is you love your neighbor. The evidence that you are in the flesh, as Paul says, you bite and devour one another. In both legalism and lawlessness, the flesh feeds upon his neighbor's flesh. So we need to pay careful heed to Paul's warning. Beware lest you be consumed by one another. Let me conclude with two more quotes from, uh, two more paragraphs from uh, Luther. Therefore, if we will be teachers and leaders of others, it behooves us to take care of these matters and to mark well this distinction between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of Christ. And this distinction is easy to be uttered in words, but to use and experience, it is very hard. Although it be never so diligently exercised and practiced, for in the hour of death or in the other agonies of conscience, these two sorts of righteousness do encounter more near together than you would wish or desire. So I do admonish you, especially such as shall become instructors and guides and counselors of consciences and also everyone else, that you exercise yourself continually by study, by reading, by meditation of the word and by prayer, that in the time of temptation you may be able to instruct and comfort both your own consciences and others, and to bring them from the law to grace, from the works of righteousness to the gift of righteousness, from Moses to Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we're so grateful for your law, but even more so for Christ, who has set us free from the curse that we might run and fly like eagles. So we do pray, Father, help us not to be hindered by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.